The Playlist Podcast and all other Playlist Podcast Network programs are sponsored by Mubi, a curated online cinema streaming a selection of exceptional independent, classic, and award-winning films from around the globe. Mubi's film experts handpick every single film they show. Each day they present a new jam and you have one month to watch it. Plans start as low as $5.99 a month. Visit MUBI.com slash The Playlist to start a special 30-day free trial. Movie's current highlights include a couple of exclusive titles, which includes the documentary Tony Conrad, Completely in the Present, and Bertrand Bonello's Sarah Winchester, Phantom Opera. But also, Movie's first major theatrical release, The Happiest Day in the Life of Ali Maquis, will open in New York and L.A. on Friday, April 21st. Shot in stunning black-and-white 16mm, this finished film won the Uncertain Regard at the Cannes Film Festival last year. It's great to see that in addition to the fantastic curation that Movie is providing, that they're also getting into the film distribution realm as well. Once again, visit mubi.com slash the playlist to start a special 30-day free trial. Now, on to the show. You're listening to The Playlist Podcast, a discussion about film news and other film-related items. I'm Ryan Oliver, and today I'm joined by Playlist Editor-in-Chief Rodrigo Perez to discuss two widely different topics. We start by diving into the trailer for Ryan Johnson's Star Wars Episode Eight: The Last Jedi, and conclude with a discussion about Netflix's appearance this year at the Cannes Film Festival and the ever-shifting paradigm of the theatrical experience. I'll now drop you into the conversation as I ask Rod what he thinks about the upcoming Star Wars film. So, of course, the big news this week is the uh, trailer for The Last Jedi for the latest for Star Wars Episode Eight has uh, been released. And um, there's been millions of articles and trailer breakdowns and analyzing shot by shot every little thing about the trailer. Um, but the most interesting thing or one of the most interesting things I saw was this um, this side by side comparison of The Force Awakens trailer and the Last Jedi trailer, which has very similar shots in both of them, but I wanted to ask you uh, a question in terms of um, the the biggest criticism the Force Awakens received, um, if you know there was any, that it was uh, essentially a New Hope 2.0, um, and with this Last Jedi trailer, like I noticed sequences of like Ray training with her lightsaber and these um, these ships that kind of look like a cross between the snow speeders and the podcast racers. They're charging on this like snow terrain towards at at walkers and i'm wondering do you do you think this movie uh is going to fall into the similar like this is empire strikes back 2.0 or uh, do do you think it's going to break off and do its own thing like uh like we've been uh told that it's going to <laughs> um well i i certainly had those issues with the force awakens i mean i not a huge Force Awakens fan. I mean, I think it's got some good stuff to it, but it's such a remix and such a re- redux that um, I found it really hard to enjoy in that way. <clears throat> I don't think the side-by-side is really any indication. Like, I know if you look at some of the content, because we posted that, and some of the co- co- comments are all about, like, wow, like, you know, they just recycle themselves and copy themselves over and over again, just like Force Awakens. And I'm like, well, first of all, it's an edited side-by-side. Right. Like someone went through the Force Awakens, all the other trailers, and and mashed something together to make it look similar. I mean, not that it isn't; it is similar. Obviously, that's by design on on purpose. Um, they have a little template for these kinds of things. Um, but even if they were exactly the same, I don't think it doesn't necessarily mean that the movies are going to be the same. You know, um, so the side by side is neat. Um, and yes, the Force Awakens was really recycled for, to me. Uh, in terms of um, the Last Jedi, and 
I think Ryan Johnson's going to be doing something different. I mean, I'm sure he really intends to do something different, whether uh, Disney and, and Lucasfilm allows him to do something different. Well, you know what? I think they actually will because they got they did this movie called Rogue One and they killed all the fucking heroes in it. And if they can get away with that and do that and cr- make a billion dollars and have that as cr- proof of concept to Alan Horn and Disney to be like, do not ever doubt us again because this movie made a billion dollars and we had zero stars, zero characters that any of the audience knew before. And we killed them all and nobody complained. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's a big, big proof of concept of like where we should be able to take risks and we can and we pulled it off. And The Force Awakens made obviously insane mega money. Um, so, yeah, Ryan Johnson should be able to do what he wants to do. He's got a pretty um, eclectic uh idiosyncratic voice as it is so um i if any if it's anything like empire i think it's because he's influenced by empire just like a lot of people and he wants to uh um i think a lot of people want to not necessarily recreate empire the empire strikes back but like hitting that tone is certainly not a bad thing everybody loves that film it's the most endeared uh film of all the of all the trilogies so um yeah i i could see it being somewhat like that but um not like not in the same way JJ um, and uh, Lawrence Kasdan did. I, I think they purposely tried to um, take a lot of like like notes and beats from the originals and ended up doing it in a way that it just felt uh, really rehashed. Yeah, I, I think I would agree with that just because, um, you know, JJ Abrams, that's sort of in his DNA as a filmmaker. Like if you've noticed from uh, his two Star Trek movies and Super 8, the sort of like, merging of the past nostalgia with present technology has always been sort of what he's all about as a filmmaker. Right. And Ryan Johnson's always been about like taking different, uh, you know, it's evident in brick brothers bloom and looper that, um, you know, taking these genre elements that everybody knows that are, that are familiar with and kind of flipping them on his head. And so, like you said, whether or not he'll be able to do that entirely with Disney and Lucasfilm money, uh, we'll have to see. But, um, I think that, um, it's capturing that tone of empire is going to be crucial. And I think that he will uh, be able to do that. And I, I'm hoping that there'll be um, some surprises uh, left in store. Um, you know, I've talked with certain friends and coworkers about different speculations about like where it's going to go. Um, people talking about like, is Ray going to turn to the dark side is blah, blah, blah. Um, so I think there's a lot of, you know, like, like the force awakens trailer did. There's also this trailer also leaves a lot um to speculate on what the movie is actually going to be without telling you anything. Right. Right. And I, I don't, I don't like going back to what I just said. I don't even know why I doubted it there for a second. Like, you know, I like to not to call out Kevin or anything, but I know that like Kevin and I, when, when force awakens was first announced, you know, Kevin was extremely skeptical about what they'd be able to do. And I said, well, they're finally going to kill Han Solo because that's what he's been meaning to do for a long time. They're like, he was like, no, 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 they're not going to do that. They can't. He's Han Solo. And I was like, no, I think like, you know, if you're going to start a big series like this, like I know there's a lot of money riding on it and stuff like that. But you want to like, you know, and and basically I predicted Han Solo from second one. I was like, you want to make a splash. You want to to you don't. And obviously it is very safe as milk in, in many ways. Um, but they still got to do some interesting things in it, right? Killing Han Solo being one of them, yeah. um, really kind of tearing down the myth. I mean, like as much – it's interesting that Force – I don't want to get on a tangent too much about Force Awakens. But the idea of like Luke Skywalker has vanished. That's the opening crawl. And then you find out all these Jedi temples have been destroyed and um, you know all this stuff has happened to Luke Skywalker. All this backstory, which is actually maybe arguably more interesting than the movie itself. 
Um, but you know that the, the, they tell this this story of what has happened, and it's ballsy, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, like they've essentially all the Jedi have been destroyed again. Luke's been betrayed. He's gone into hiding. He's vanished now. Nobody knows where he is. And you know the the, the galaxy is in this form of chaos again. And, and then Han Solo eventually dies. It's a, there's some interesting storytelling elements there. Of course, it's told in a, in a way that's all too familiar. Um, but I guess my point being that I, I think Ryan Johnson's going to be able to do um, some cool stuff with there in, in that movie in that framework. I don't doubt that at all. Um, I, it's interesting that the trailer itself. I, I, there's that line at the very end, you know, where he says, you know, I, if there's the one truth I know, it's the Jedi should end. And that's a pretty tantalizing line. I mean, could you imagine they were bold enough to like just kill off all the Jedi and and have no more Jedi in this series? Like, I mean, I think that's something that um, they could kind of never do. But since there are, they have been trying to pull off some some bold ideas. I, I mean, imagine they tried doing that. Yeah, that's definitely a bold idea. I know, you know. Mark Ham- well, Mark Hamill himself says he shouldn't be trusted, but I know he talked about or teased the idea of Luke. Uh, going to the dark side, which wouldn't be too out of realm of character because he felt that push pull at the end of Return of the Jedi, so that would um, make sense narratively. So there's there's definitely a lot of different uh, ballsy things they could do, and I'm glad you brought up Rogue One because that that was the movie that you know I, I totally anticipated going into that movie, even though we all know what we all know how that story ends but i'm like they're not going to kill all these characters like there's there's no way like disney's not going to let them do that and then slowly one by one as i'm watching the third act of the movie i'm like oh holy shit they're they're actually going to do this um yeah that was that's certainly impressive so no i think though you know there's i i I think in the title there i think a lot of people assume and uh that luke will probably die in this one but um but who knows? Maybe he'll turn. Maybe he'll turn dark, and um, I don't know. We'll see. I, I'm not a big. I'm not a usually a huge speculator, so I don't have a ton of theories in regards right, to this. Right. <laughs> well, I guess my. I, I'm not much of a speculator, but I am a bit of a dorky Star Wars fan. So, um, I don't think they will. I don't think Luke's going to turn to the dark side. I think he will eventually die within this new trilogy um, because he got to clear the decks and not have these old people anymore. And you know, they can just continue with like. Chewbacca and and the ageless characters like Chewbacca and C-3PO, R2-D2. But, you know, um, you can't have Mark Hamill at 80 years old. Like, it's just not going to work. So I I think he'll eventually get killed. I don't think he's going to turn to the dark side. And um, I think they're going to play around with this idea of, like, the Jedi ending, but I don't think they'll actually do it. That's my my two cents. And that line, of course, where he's like – uh, you know, my, my the only truth I know is that the Jedi will end. I I think that's Daisy to be really nerdy. Daisy Ridley has sort of speculated, or not sorry, speculated, but she hinted that um, you know when you meet your heroes, um, they're not always who they turn out to be. That's what she said at Star Wars Celebration. So I think you know that that really like telegraphs the the dynamic of like Ray and Luke Skywalker in the beginning is he's going to be like I don't want you here. I don't know what you're doing. Like I don't. Don't, I don't want your lightsaber. I don't want my lightsaber. Like, leave me alone. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And he's essentially going to be like, I've given up on everything. And she's like, no, you're Luke Skywalker. you got to be awesome. And there's going to be this whole sort of 
you know, friction between the two of them where she's like, you know, um, hopeful and, and naive and guileless and he's like hardened and jaded and doesn't want anything to do with it. And that's probably going to be one of the lines that he delivers early is going to be that, you know, the only thing I know is that the Jedi should not exist because um, so many of them have been killed and so many of them have been killed at my hands. He's responsible for all this, right? So one of the things that Luke Skywalker is going to, one of his... Uh, arcs character arcs is to me the guilt that he feels from like all the jedi that have been killed on his watch you know what i mean right no that makes that makes total sense i i think this character you're you're right and that this character that everyone's known and loved for 40 plus years i you know to to just change the dynamic of that character completely um i think would be sort of a betrayal to what people know and i i don't think people would be happy with that totally but even then like they will be like if if um, the dynamic I just articulated does play uh, play out like I'm expecting it will. Um, you know that that is also a big shift on on who he is and and um, what fans have expected. But obviously they want to try and you want to freshen it up. You want to do some new things, right? Right. And I can't believe that I just went on this whole speculative tangent where you probably would have heard this on another geek site. But um, I am. A, uh, like a closet Star Wars fan, so <laughs> that's a good way to put it. I like that. Uh, maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm not so closeted, but <laughs> you just um, outed yourself. <laughs> yeah, I just totally outed myself. So moving away from the more dorky aspects of this podcast, um, <laughs> uh, on the completely other side of the spectrum, away from like Hollywood blockbusters, um, some news about the Cannes Film Festival. Um, Netflix is going to have their first uh, ever some of their dis- distributed films. Uh, play at the Cannes Film Festival, Bong Joon-ho's latest film, Noah Baumbach's latest film, um, filmmakers whose films themselves have been no stranger to the festival. But um, but it's interesting in the way that uh, the Cannes Film Festival has kind of been opposed to Netflix's approach. Uh, they've been opposed of Netflix saying that we need to stop romanticizing theatrical experience. Uh, and yet these, these films that Netflix uh, ultimately will distribute have now landed on the festival. Um, I was wondering what your sort of um, initial thoughts on that. And granted it, it, the films sounds like the films just speak for themselves, but I find that interesting that um, there's a conflict between what Kansas is trying to do for the theatrical experience and Netflix's films playing there. Yeah. And in many ways they're, they're totally at odds. Like, you know, Netflix, as you said, is, has, has stated, like, let's not romanticize the theatrical experience. Let's talk about content. And the way that we're a delivery system for content and, you know, the, the reality is that is that people want content essentially streamed into their home or immediately and that's just the reality of the world. And, and there's a lot of things that I um, – I'm a pragmatic person so I agree a lot with Netflix. I do love the theater experience and I want it to exist. But I know the the practicality of a lot of people being like, and so many people I know being just like, I, I would rather have this just on demand in my home instead of the appointment viewing to go see it in a theater, right? Like yeah. at a certain time and all, all that it entails. So that's completely at odds with Can, who, you know, believe that they are the, the, the cinephile of all cinephiles, which argu- arguably they are. And, um, you know, they champion the theatrical experience. They, they champion cinema itself with a capital C. And um, so and then they have poo-pooed Netflix before. They, they've, they, you know, they don't like the idea of like cinema on a small box on television. They, they've poo-pooed television. They've really um, uh, given like little passive aggressive swipes at, at TV and uh, Netflix in the past. 
and and here you know this year they they not only have two TV shows in the in their lineup, they have two Netflix uh, films in competition. Um, Thierry, uh, I'm going to botch his name, Thierry Fermeau, um, the pronunciation apologies in advance or after the fact. And um, I believe he said something like, well, you know, they happen to be on Netflix, but, um, you know, they're great filmmakers that we admire. So they're at the festival regardless. They could have been, I think he's trying to imply like these guys could have put out their films anywhere and we wouldn't accept them, which I buy, you know, on the other hand, it's a, it's a little bit of a, it's a little bit of a defensive statement. Sure. And and that's and that's where I would have to like at least sort of champion Netflix a little bit in that realm mm-hmm. in in terms of uh because uh by Thierry's statement saying that these films would have been accepted uh no matter what platform that is defensive, but yet that also sort of cements Netflix as a player in terms of the quality uh films that they are trying to do. Like, you know, they've yeah. they've clearly uh staked their claim in the television game, uh, they're absolutely killing it in the stand-up comedy game. Um, but yes, they, absolutely. But they have yet to really like find a way to uh, do like films like top-tier uh, thematic talents. Um, you know, they had Beast of No Nation, which was a great film, but the rollout of that was kind of a nightmare, and it didn't like play out super well for them, and it didn't get the awards consideration they. Uh, thought it should have um so they're they've kind of went back to the drawing board and they're they're doubling down on uh saying that the these are going to play um specifically on our streaming service they're going to play day and date and so they're they're sort of they're sticking to their guns and asking the industry to uh to change and be flexible on what it means like theatrical releases netflix releases like what it's it's that same line between TV and movies, like that where you're drawing that mm-hmm. line in the sand, which one is which. But then the sort of merging of the two, it's it's become complicated. It's become a gray area. Right. To, to yeah, the reality. Yeah, the reality is is that, that those lines have been blurred, and people love to delineate things because it's easier. Um, you know, like Thierry has 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 uh, has dinged television a bunch of times but like yeah i mean now he's got two television shows on in not in competition but at cans he's got um jane campion's top of the lake and twin peaks right yeah right and david lynch's twin peaks and his reasoning is again is well they're top tiered filmmakers and um you know they both won palm d'ors of course we're going to have them in in and you know it, their format happens to be television and that's also I totally get that reasoning as well. I, I, they're just a little bit of like um, they're just a little bit of um, snobs and um, and ossified in, in in their in their view of the world, I guess, or through cinema. And um, so they're a little bit black and white. And, and you know, they've they've stated that, you know, we're not going to have a television section at um our festival, like, you know, Toronto's doing now and South by Southwest is doing and all the festivals seem to be um, adapting to that because, you know, you have to adapt. Like television is becoming a, a, a central and big part of visual narrative, you know, like it's it's I'm, I'm starting to think of it as visual narrative rather than films and, and television, like different buckets. They're becoming one. It's just um, narrative is is expanding. Um, and so, you know, for Can to say, like, we're not going to have any television there because they're being snobs about it is I think a little bit um, it's a little short sighted and, and maybe a little condescending. Um, like again, they have two TV shows there this year, maybe next year they're going to have like three or four TV shows and they're going to say, well, 
you know, these are great filmmakers. Well, great filmmakers are doing television. Everybody's working on both sides of the fence. That fence is coming down. So um, I don't know if they're going to have to eat their, you know, eat their shoe or whatever by saying, you know, we're not going to have television here. But um, they're starting to, to sound a little bit outdated by taking that stance. Sure. I, I think that uh, you're you're absolutely right because like the filmmakers are working on they are working on both sides of the spectrums. They're going they're going to whatever format they feel is the need to fit their story, to fit their narrative. Whether that's a 8-hour miniseries, whether it's a 5-season show or a 2-hour movie, like they're going to be flexible to you know, as top tier filmmakers are going to be smart to know, okay, this is going to work as a series or this is going to work as a movie. Um, but you're going to have to be able to be flexible and have, if you want to continue to bring in top tier talent to the festival, uh, you're going to have to acknowledge, uh, you know, you have to acknowledge like the top of the lakes and the twin peaks or shows like the Nick or, um, you know, these shows that all these prestigious, uh, can winning filmmakers are, are doing. Mm -hmm. The other side of it is that like, sure. Like, you know, you can say that, oh, this is this is the story that I, I, I think this works better for television or that I think this work, works better for film. The reality is that a lot of it's economic-driven. And and a filmmaker could be pitching a movie and trying to get it greenlit and going to indie studios and trying to get financing and, and hit walls and not be able to go anywhere. And then they could go, hmm, and re-pitch it to Netflix and say, hey, there's my idea. Um, you know, they're taking their pitch, they're tweaking it and they're saying now it's going to be an eight hour thing or an eight hour episodes and maybe it can expand. And Netflix goes, yeah, we love it. We'll throw a ton of dough at you and you'll do it. So, you know, your, your film idea now becomes a, a, a television show because economically it's in your favor to do so. Um, you know, I think that's where a lot of it is shifting as well. It's not just necessarily about like, what's the best medium for it. It's like, what is a way for my story to get told? What is the the path of least resistance, you know, right. and uh, filmmakers always have a ton of uh, of resistance in terms of like, you know, uh, what's what, where am I going to get a budget? Where am I get my funding? Um, and, and, you know, people even like David Fincher, who gets to pull off like, you know, uh, a 50 million dollar Gone Girl or however much it costs. You know, it's like a, a drama that like maybe in someone else's hands costs 10, 15 million dollars. But David Fincher doesn't do anything for cheap, you know. Right. But 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 David likes to do things the way he wants to do them. And one of the reasons he's at Netflix with Mindhunter is that he gets carte blanche. You know, they don't give him a lot of resistance. He doesn't have to do like test screenings. He doesn't have to be faced with the same sort of things that the studio system does. And for him, that's a better way of working. Um, you know, like for the Dragon Tattoo, he did all the marketing. He, he really just did. He wants he's earned this right. Well, he believes he's earned this right. I don't know if the studios feel this way, uh, but the, the like I this is my vision. This is what I'm going to do. Take it or leave it. Um, and he has l left it many times. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think for him, I think Netflix, my long winded point is, <laughs> uh, I think Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, all these places with like, they're essentially startups with a lot of money. Although Netflix isn't really a startup anymore. They're like Kleenex. They're a global brand and they're never going away. But the others are like, startups with with money that they that they throw up things and they're going to give they're going to incentivize filmmakers to be there and one of the ways they're doing that is to giving them creative freedom and healthy budgets absolutely yes thank you that's what i was going to swing into when you immediately like when you immediately started talking about david fincher that was the first thing i thought of of they they not only want carte blanche but the thing that netflix and amazon are doing so well 
and big studios aren't doing anymore and this is why it's like why can has to be flexible is they're keeping the mid-budget movie alive like right, right. now like you know the you, know, you hear all these talks about either the studio either makes the five million dollar movie or the 200 million dollar movie you know there's talk about that mid-budget going away and movies like Oakshaw or the Merrowood story is these like mid-budget movies that studios don't want to take a chance anymore Netflix and Amazon are are giving those movies a uh, home or War Machine the David Michaud movie like look mm-hmm. the rover did not do good numbers like that trajectory would not have allowed him to make that movie at like Warner Brothers or anything uh, but Netflix is like, yeah, you're an immensely talented filmmaker and you have Brad Pitt. That's great. We'll give you all the money you want to make your vision. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so, you know, people have obviously can being an example. People have a, a, a complicated relationship with Netflix, right? Like IndieWire did that piece today. Netflix keeps buying great movies. So it's a shame they're getting buried. I mean, that's that's a really um, that's a one sided perspective. You know, they're getting buried. To film Twitter and to us, they're getting buried. To the millions and millions of people uh, who are on Netflix, there's probably millions of more people who are able to watch uh, Joe Swanberg's um, Win It All compared to all the people who see it in uh, the theaters theatrically. Um, That's the reality of it. So on some levels, we're like, oh, you know, like I I didn't see it on my Netflix screen or or I don't know what the the data numbers are because I I didn't see it in theaters this weekend. But the reality is there's so many millions, more millions of of people and eyeballs on Netflix. Joe Swanberg's win it all. He I spoke to him recently. He said, I made this movie for Netflix. Essentially, he's had a good experience with Netflix because he's done his series easy there. Mm -hmm. He got good. He got he got freedom. He got a great budget. He got paid, which is important because he's, you know, people forget that these are jobs, you know, I mean, you want to be able to do cool artistic things, but you need to pay and to, to live and to eat. He's got a wife and two kids. Um, so he was paid handsomely for Netflix. He directs TV episodes of Netflix, like love and things like that. And they fund him doing his movies. And, you know, he's understood the, the correlation, the relationship with the audience there. And he knows that like, you know, I can put out win it all in in I don't know IFC or someone can put it out and put it out theatrically and it'll play limited release. So um, you know, and X amount of people will see it. But like the reality is on Netflix, there's just a million more people with the potential to see it, and I'm I'm 100% convinced that more people will see it on that platform. Now, is that good for the theatrical experience? No. Is that good for movies? I'm not I'm not so sure either. But the but the reality is filmmakers are starting to wake up to this and and realizing that, like, well, that's an option. I can do it. Noah Bombach is not someone that you would think of as um, someone who would go on to Netflix. But, you know, his film is done. They probably came to him. Uh, they didn't finance that movie, right? So he could have had the option to take that to Fox Searchlight or any other studio that he's gone to. And I'm sure Netflix was just like, we want to be in the Noah Bombach business. So, and also there's the fact that Adam Sandler's in that I was going to say, ne- the, yeah, they're already in the Adam Sandler business. So that they're makes... They're hugely in the Adam Sandler business. And Adam Sandler does insane numbers for them. So, um, which of course they don't release, but they've said this. So, they see an Adam Sandler movie. It's directed by Noah Bombach. They just jump in front of, jump the line essentially, jump the queue and say, well, it was cool that that uh, Fox Searchlight was going to offer you five million dollars for this. We're going to offer you ten, and mm-hmm. we own the worldwide rights to it, and it's ours completely. And you know, you're going to have the potential. We'll let you have it at Cannes, 
and and even though we don't do that with a lot of things, and you're going to see it's you're going to get paid twice what you normally would, and it's going to be seen all over. So what's the downside? And you no, know, Bonebox probably like, I don't think there is a downside, and I'm going to at least try it for this film. You know, yeah, absolutely. And like I can I can vouch for this on just like like a personal level, to be honest, like I, I live in Seattle, which is a relatively large market, but like, uh, movies still don't hit here if they're in limited release till like two or three weeks into their release. And then they get dumped into a couple show times and some theater that like a bus line is like difficult to get to. Um, and then you Netflix is like, Hey, we'll buy this movie. And then it's immediate, uh, available immediately. Now, you know, I'm somebody personally who loves the theatrical experience and wants to keep it alive. And, uh, Absolutely, and I but I and I also say this I say this as a fan of both Noah Baumbach and Joe Swanberg. I love their movies, but I I think their movies play just just as well at, at home as they do in a theater. Like they're they're movies that are you know the demand. Um, I mean, they're more written. They're more dependent on the script, and uh, I think that those movies uh, play just as well at home. Uh, as they do theatrically does that mean they shouldn't play in a theater no but um i think those like again it's that sort of like deciding what should what should play in a theater and what's like that's it's okay it's okay if this is seen at home it's okay if this is seen in the living room sort of thing i mean to play devil's advocate to that i do kind of believe that every film is better in theaters i would agree Um, in that way like especially because both of those filmmakers skew towards comedy um and comedy to me, like I've seen comedies that objectively probably aren't super great, but if you see them in a crowd of people and people are laughing and it's hitting those highs and you're laughing along with it, like it elevates a mediocre movie to something that feels a little bit more special than it would have if you just watched it at home. So I can, I'm with you on that. I think any movie should play in a theater, but there are certain movies that will play just as well at home or like not far off than they would in a theater. Sure. I, I, I honestly, like I, I do believe every film plays a little bit better in theaters than it does at home. Mm-hmm. But if you've only seen it at home, you don't know the difference. Right. Um, you don't know what you're missing. Uh, so I mean, I, every film, like, you know, I, when I was doing my top 10 at the end of the year for last year, I realized oh, every single one of these films that I adored the most were ones I saw in the theaters. It was like the theatrical experience, did it make, did the theatrical experience make that movie better? Um, in a way, yes, because you know what? I'm locked in. I'm in a dark room. I'm watching that. I don't, I'm not even talking to my wife. I'm not, there's no phone around. There's nothing, there's zero distractions. So I think just because of that, that central thing that you're locked in the dark essentially by yourself with other people, but like you're experiencing one-on-one it's unfiltered. There's nothing that, that beats that. You know what I mean? That's like information straight to your eyebrows or to your brain and your eyes and your brain and your heart. And, and there's nothing like that. That's it's, it's always the ultimate experience. No matter if you're watching Joe Swanberg movie or anything Um, that said, the reality is not everybody watches movies that way. And, um, the the way we watch movies are changing. Our cultural habits are changing. They are, and 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 so um, is it is a is a movie still a movie if it premieres on Netflix, which is what they were asking this IndieWire article. The the reality is yes, and 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 it's and I you know everybody loves a theatrical experience, um, but at least when you're having this conversation, understand the economics behind things, understand how uh, cultural 
trends and and how how economics is is driving the cultural trend yeah. how we're becoming accustomed to it it's becoming to the point that you know it's it watching movies at home is going to become the norm whether we like it or not it's true i'll give you i'll give you an example a perfect example of, of an experience i had this weekend uh just you know realizing how vast uh, you know, the the movie going, like how the spectrum of moviegoers are. For example, I went to a, a morning showing of The Fate of the Furious on Saturday. Mm -hmm. uh, opening weekend, the movie opened to 100 million domestically this weekend. There were like yeah. 15 people in the theater that I went to. 15 really? people to, the, yeah, to the movie that was the highest grossing movie of the weekend this um this weekend. And then that afternoon, I went to the SIF Center to see a 35 millimeter showing of Eraserhead. Packed, completely full, Packed. yeah, completely sold out. More people in that show than there were the Fate of the Furious show I went to. So, like, the dynamic, like, the types of people who are keeping that theatrical experience alive are keeping it alive in droves. But, the like you said, the economical sense, more and more people, maybe, like, your average moviegoer are tending to watch things at home now. Right. Like you're talking about you're in Seattle, right? Yeah. So that's that's your specific market, which is obviously like art house stuff is going to thrive there. And the theatrical experience now, like, you know, this 35 millimeter print of Eraserhead, that really um, caters to cinephiles. And what they're doing here in New York to cater to cinephiles is to really make the theatrical experience. It's what the Draft House is doing, what they started in Austin. Right. And they've moved here that 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 template of like making the theatrical experience, this, this really special thing you can eat, you know, you can have reserved seating. It's this really, I mean, the theatrical experience is, is becoming to me, it's, and I had this conversation with James Gray last week. It's like becoming the LP, you know, like the, like records, people who buy records now, it's a specialty thing. Um, they're a little bit more expensive, but like, you know, they're the audiophiles, right? right. They really want, um, this special, um, uh, treatment of, of the thing that they love, which is music. And, you know, the theatrical experience is going that way. So I think it's becoming a more boutique-y thing. So it will always exist, but it's becoming, yeah, I, I don't know how to, like, you know, the, if the MP3 is the, uh, or if the iPod player or your phone is the mass consumption, which it basically is these days, then, um, you know, the LP is for the, the specialized uh, consumer out there. And that's exactly where, uh, that's exactly how, you know, streaming and theatrical is going to be. Streaming is going to be the norm for the, the average consumer and then the, the specialized cinephile is going to watch things in the theaters no no i think that's a valid uh valid point but if, if that's the case just like with vinyl the theatrical experience will never die it will just it will just change it will just change. yeah and and you'll still have of course you'll have your your blockbusters and they'll they'll keep those but yeah it, it does and that you know they'll have that in the theaters and and maybe no one will go see anything else but those and and yeah that's people lament that and 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 it's worth lamenting but it's just economics drive everything unfortunately you know it's like this is the model and and this is the the financials of it the optics and the the industry uh is forced to uh to to participate in in, in what the economics of which is the reality you know right no that's that's so that's just the long tangent of, of how we went from theory and can disliking netflix to the reality of 
of consumption. <laughs> exactly. Well, I don't know I mean, how we got there, but I, I we could do it. Like you just just give us the time and the tangents to do so, and we'll we'll just keep stumbling down that rabbit hole. I mean, we went from Star Wars to cans, so who knows? If we keep talking, who knows where we end up? So right, maybe right. maybe it's a good spot to to break this well, off. To, well, why don't we bring it back? Actually, and what do you what do you think about the can lineup? Uh, the can lineup. I mean. I think it's I think it's great, honestly, and um, I you know I'm happy I'm happy that the movies you know whether they're pooing Netflix I think that, like the lineup's great and I think that those you know uh, Bong Joon Ho Noah Baumbach um, I think they're fantastic filmmakers I'm glad their films will be seen at a festival that uh, it's deserving and honestly as a huge David Lynch fan and a huge fan of Twin Peaks I'm happy it's playing there too I'm happy those lines are blurring since. Lynch himself said it's basically a 400-page, 18-episode movie is what he considers this uh, Twin Peaks revival to be. So, um, no, I think the lineup is yeah. – yeah, I think it's great. I mean, at the end of the day, do you do you care? I mean, do you just want to see it? Do you like – like, you know, how much do you – does it does it go into your mind other than being an industry person who – like, you know, we dissect these things. But, but really, like, you know, Netflix uh, – having two Netflix films at Cannes is – interesting from that perspective does anybody else care you know does the audience really care does no, it make I, a difference to them i don't think so and i think the the uh the difference or not even the difference i think the thing that matters has always mattered whether it's streaming platform whether it's a theatrical experience the the thing that matters the most is just quality filmmaking and quality films and i don't think people are going to care uh, whether they're on Netflix or not, whether they're over at uh, Amazon or A24 or whoever else is keeping like quality cinema going, I don't think people are going to care as long as they get to watch good movies and they're still being funded. Yeah, I mean, one can argue that it's content, not format, right? Like you didn't, you mm-hmm. didn't really care if you had cassettes or CDs. You were just trying to get the, you were just trying to listen to what you were trying to listen to. Exactly. You liked the artists, oh. and it's the same thing with this. It's like I like David Michaud. Like. I want to see War Machine in the theater. Unfortunately, that might not happen, but I'm just excited mm-hmm. to see what he does next. And if that's on my 42-inch TV, then so be it. Yeah, and and then so, you know, we go back to vinyl. Like there's people who go, well, this piece of art that I love sounds best on this. And there will always be those people, but, you know, it's just like the theatrical experience. People are going to go, and like I just said, like I don't think anything beats it, honestly. I think that's the best way to see anything. I don't think um, it beats it. I don't and, think anything and, beats vinyl now that you keep you keep mentioning that, and I've tried to hold back. Sure, <laughs> and that's the, that. <laughs> that's the best format for experiencing that piece of art, but it's not the art, right? right. Unless you're a total fetishist and the LP and the tangibility and the, the holding it in your hand is part of it. And I guess in some ways it is, but I don't, and I love going to some of these boutique uh, film theaters and I love having a great seat and I love it being, but I don't fetishize that. I, I just want to, I do love being in a movie and I love experiencing it unadulterated, unfiltered. Um, but at the end of the day, I'm there for the content, right? Yep. Um, and I'm, I'm there, I'm right there with you. I'm, I prefer, I prefer to see things in the theaters as much as possible, but, uh, you know, as, as you know, you know, as, as a parent, um, I know someone mm-hmm. who like just works insane hours. Sometimes it's not feasible. Sometimes it just isn't feasible as, um, you know, you can always make the time, but it becomes, it becomes difficult. Yeah. Lives get in the way. Lives lives get in the way. Well, thanks for having me, and uh, let's talk soon. Yeah, let's chat soon. Thank you.